Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie, how are you today? I'm great, how are you doing today? I'm delighted to see a little patch of blue sky out my window this morning after a couple of days of grey and there was a lot of uh, chat last night on Twitter and Facebook when I was checking in before I went to bed about people putting their heating back on. I've not quite gone that far but you did say you were off to get a jumper, sweater you said yesterday and then you changed it to jumper when we were chatting on the phone. In fact I'm wearing one now because you know me, it's never warm enough in Scotland to swim. I used to say it's never warm enough to swim but now that's gone out the window so but it just generally is never warm enough. I know, and I've kind of cracked, despite the weather, I've started doing all the kind of summer making activities and gotten out the, you know, the kind of preserves, but I had the kids drug them out in the rain this week, my littlest, to collect elderflower heads, which I'm sure you'll all out there tell me I shouldn't be doing in the rain, to make elderflower cordial. Because I just thought, you know what, it's summer, even though it doesn't feel like it, we've got to behave like it's summer, we've got to go do all the summery things. Well, we've got something about making today, don't we? We're continuing with our terrific commissioned work today. Um, it's a piece by Lisa Williams, who's also one of our lead readers, called Gathering Threads. And then we're going to finish up with um, a Jackie Kay poem called The Knitter. Do you mind getting us started? Not at all. Gathering Threads, Lisa Williams. Ravel and unravel are both synonyms and antonyms rather like my two aunts. Separated by an ocean, one taught me to knit, the other to crochet, and both wove laughter, love and mystery into their creations. One with eyes of coolest blue that shied away from sunlight, the other warm amber flecked with mischief. The more I unravel their stories, the more I ravel. Or is it the other way around? I learnt to knit at Portsmouth Auntie's feet, enjoying the chattering of the clunky needles that made my first scarf and delighting in making something grow. She would applaud the growth of the proud rainbow snake that hung around my neck, a patchwork beauty of leftover yarn that added to my weirdo status at school. On visits, we'd make tea together in the kitchen of her unassuming flat with a kitchen of turquoise formica, frosted windows, and neighbours with useful assumptions. Portsmouth auntie proffered purple tins of classic British treasures, saving my favourites for me as we gossiped about my father dominating the tea-time conversations. My brother's rather bossy, isn't he? She'd whisper in a Hampshire burr, secretly slipping me the nutty chocolates while I waited for her to cast on. After one visit, I wrapped myself in a half-finished blanket to travel the 50 snowy miles home, curled up in the back of my parents' car. It was my floral-scented armour against my mother's indignation at my whistling, a skill eagerly learned from my second bonus auntie during the visit. Lifelong companions, Both women wore walking shoes as tough as my trainers. Perhaps our matching footwear provoked my father to anxiously scour my teenage bedroom and examine the personal ads of the feminist magazines hidden in my drawers. The knit is outward-facing. The pearl is inward-facing. I'd always heard pearl as pearl, 
like the colour of Portsmouth auntie's hair. As she bent to show me the complexity of an unfamiliar pattern, it shone like no other hair I had ever seen. With Portsmouth, under threat of Nazi bombs, she and her siblings were hoodwinked into sitting on a train and fitted with gas masks for a practice run before the mass of high-pitched wailing reached the crowd of parents left on the platform, they were whisked away by train to live with a West Country man who stole their sugar rations. However, sweetness was taken by one hand of fate and granted with another. She met my bonus auntie, planting cabbages for the land army, and they had remained side by side ever since. Although none of us ever heard the pearl side of the story, I could feel that even their exasperated chuckles were laced with a rare and beautiful kind of love. Should we stop there for a minute? Yeah, there's so much in that little starting bit, isn't there? Oh, it's such a beautiful piece, yeah. Mm. I love that thing. Of just Let's just start with the knitting. I always thought Pearl was spelled P-E-A-R-L too. Until now or no, while I, you I were younger? I can't remember exactly oh, yeah. when I was younger and learning to knit. And I should say right now that I can't knit. I probably only ever, I went through a phase knitting and I probably only ever knitted a few things and gave up. And my mum still knits. But yeah, I definitely thought it was P-E-A-R-L. Um, one of the other thing that I really wanted to talk about was this rainbow snake idea. It brought to mind um, an Adrian Rich poem that I love called Transcendental Etude. But it, in the poem, and it's a poem I loved as a young woman, it's about an older woman pulling together almost like a rag rug of her life. And she's kind of weaving in scraps of yarn and scraps of ribbon and bits of you know flowers from the garden and whatever's kind of blown through her house or her life, really. And I'm probably getting it wrong, but that's my memory of the poem is that that's how women make a life. They take a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And effectively, we end up with this, what in my head has always been this incredibly colourful kind of rag rug of experiences and textures and feelings and time. And each thing gives you a piece of time or place, if that makes sense. And so as soon as she said that it was just like sort of little patchwork beauty of leftover yarn, I did think, I'm sure that her auntie would have been able to point to the jumpers or each little bit would remind her of the things she was making for someone you know that color was your sister's jumper and that color was your brother's whatever which I love the idea of in fact I love it more than the idea of a complete and fully colored object I like the idea of it telling a story in some way well I know that both of us have a bag hidden in our loft of um, pieces of clothing that our children have worn on certain occasions for certain things that one of these days we're going to learn to patchwork and each make a quilt out of them because I distinctly remember you lending me girls dresses from your two which are older than my daughter and saying to me those two I want back the others you know hand on to anyone else that you think could use them or pass them to a charity shop when when Marvin grows out of them but could I have that one back and that one back and that one back because Florence wore that on her first birthday and Madeline wore that when she went to school and you were already thinking ahead to think right those are the things that I want to appear in my patchwork I just have this vision I mean I, I'm laughing thinking you and I'll be in some care home someday stitching it together over and over again it'll be like a never-ending project but I just think it would be a lovely thing to have a quilt you know that each little piece was a memory of some kind or that you could picture a child in it and I have the same way for the boys I've kept all those sort of little you know every couple of years I would get each of them a little smart shirt to wear on smart occasions or whatever you know that's a pipe dream 
I never sit still long enough <laughs> to knit anything, let alone quilt, but you just never know, do you? So I love this idea of a bonus ante. I like the way that that's treated in this piece of prose, that idea that we never heard the pearl side of the story, you know, that they, their chuckles were laced with a rare and beautiful kind of love. We don't really need to know. In some ways, we're in the same place as the little girl. We don't really need to know what's going on. We just know they're really happy. And the idea that the bonus ante is so much of an equal of the ante. I think is lovely. It's not a sense of the auntie's the family member and her partner or her friend or her living companion is an addition or someone that added on. It's like get one, get one free sort of idea. They're both equal in status. They're both equally loved and equally part of her family and the memories. And it's not dropped in as a special thing particularly. I love the tough trainers. That's really funny. And I particularly love the hilarious father anxiously scouring the teenage bedroom to work out whether she's... <laughs> being overly influenced (laughs) which I can remember that kind of language in my family as well I don't want you influenced by the wild child cousin or whatever which is really funny but I also love the kind of quiet chat about you know I remember loving hearing stories about my parents from their siblings because you would always get a different side to things and I was always hoping that you'd find out something outrageous my mum did definitely did have a wilder youth than she did when she was raising us she was pretty open about it I was hoping that her siblings would kind of tell on her and tell us some crazy stories and every once in a while they did but I think to be fair to her she probably had more competition in that family to be the wildest the stories tended to be about her siblings so but I love the my brother's rather bossy isn't he there's so much but I think we could just keep talking about this section of the story for the entire time we have together I wonder if we should move on (laughs) (laughs) okay here we go Trinidad auntie had soft comfortable arms that were made for hugs and tickles They would embrace me after a wild ride along the dusty highway from Piarco Airport, my uncle weaving away from reckless drivers and potential bandits. The view of Port of Spain would change from colonial mansions to the wide savannah famous for carnival and cricket, to flat interlocking streets named after gems like agate, citrine and turquoise. The neighborhood children would run from their verandas to crowd around the car as we slowed past the painted concrete houses and came to a stop. My grandmother's house was an Aladdin's cave of treats for any child, oozing with piles of hot sada roti, crates of soda bottles and a dazzling array of colors, and trays of homemade sweets. Once I'd been hugged, kissed, and squeezed to death, my aunt would take out her crochet needles bags of coloured thread, and weave her magic creations before my eyes. With my mother out of sight, we would indulge in pink and white coconut candies, impossibly sticky tulum made from local molasses, and bags of tamarind balls whose white sugar coating would lure you to their sour insides. There was always a box of Cracker Jack waiting for me that I loved more for its exotic American trinket than its crunchy clusters of peanuts and popcorn. The white sailor on the box, a reminder of the American naval base immortalized in rum and Coca-Cola from the time before Trinidad acquired a confident swagger from the black power movement and the oil boom of the 70s. You real like sweet ting, eh? She would laugh. You just like me, child. Just before it was time to leave, I could finally inspect the long table I'd been peeping at throughout the visit, struggling to obey Caribbean rules of handling objects only with express permission. Spread before me was a glorious collection of the latest fashions in bold, tropical colours. Halterneck tops, hot pants, and glittering evening gowns befitting Diana Ross. 
and I slowly walked up and down, gasping at the exquisite handiwork of each unique piece and agonizing over my single choice to take away. This was haute couture in miniature for Barbie dolls to live their best lives, with or without Ken. A schooner had disappeared one day, just towards the end of the war, unraveling a pampered childhood of sugarcane and servants. Afterwards, quiet mutterings spread across Granada about a German engine, a British mistake, and classified government documents. Her father's white horse, named after Emperor Haile Selassie, was now absent from the cane field, as was the group of ambitious men plotting a free and unified Caribbean from around the family dinner table. Forced to leave their great house, her younger sister, my mother, pulled tightly on the string suddenly dangled for pretty brown women in a 1950s colony, beauty queen, bank worker, and air hostess, who, with a smaller waist and a harder heart than my aunt, had melted the softening color bar with a dazzling smile. According to dubious family lore, having unfortunate extra inches had narrowed my aunt's life choices. Half of Granada, including my family, had followed the trail south in search of adventure and extra dollars, but I like to think that my aunt lived with her mother to be a loving comfort, a knowing companion in the moments when my grandmother's eyes flickered towards broad-shouldered strangers in the distance. How easily those miniature nooses slipped onto the needle and fastened to another. Circular crochet doilies decorated the house, a legacy of Christian missions to the Caribbean. The one covering the vanity table was overlaid with bottles of talcum powder, Vaseline and American perfume. The bedroom altar to hygiene common to every Caribbean woman. I was a willing acolyte, dutifully bearing my washcloth and soap to the shower as I followed the rhythmic clapping of her rubber slippers. I wanted skin like my aunt's, skin that was soft, smooth and radiant but her beautiful skin proved a little too thin for the lashings of a harsh and pitiless world. Perhaps these intricately woven doilies doubled as portals for concerned ancestors when life began to fray, transforming into Islamic mandalas and webs of wisdom from Spider Anansi himself. That's a huge movement, isn't it, in that second part of the piece? massive. The whole tone and the whole sense of writing has completely changed for me in that second piece. So we go from what feels really familiar in Portsmouth to what doesn't feel familiar at all. It feels like a kind of glittering, exotic change. I mean, she calls it herself, doesn't she? She's using different language to describe this other place, which suddenly feels very other. And there's a sadness underlying the second section that I didn't feel at all in the first section. Is it a case of the grass always being greener? Does the one that left wish they'd not? Does the one that stayed wish they'd gone? Quite often in life, I don't know about you, I'm thinking about my own family, not my immediate family, but sort of my mum's family or my father's family. Are there friends I have who come from bigger families where some of the family, some of the children have gone off, or particularly my mum did, left Ohio and then to go to Iran, which is kind of a crazy thing. But then, you know, even then, she, she never lived in Ohio really again uh, for any period of time. And then I have an aunt who, in that family, there are five of them, four girls and a boy, and I have one aunt who really never left Ohio, and she's still there. And I think my mum, when I was growing up, would have said, you know, you have to go and see the world, you have to explore, it's important to go be part of something else bigger than yourself. I'm sure that my Ohio auntie would say that she's had a brilliant life. 
you know, and actually now as older women, I'm not sure who, who actually as someone watching them, I'm not sure who has had the better life, if I'm honest, in the sense that, you know, Ohio auntie has a real sense of, you know, where she is and I don't know, history in some way, a real sense of comfort about where she is. So yeah, I'm not sure. And that's probably true in my dad's family or other friends that have in Scotland, you know, friends whose siblings have gone halfway around the world and others who stayed put. From the outside, I'm not actually sure who's done the best thing. It doesn't seem as clear cut, whereas when I was younger, I would have said the ones someone got stuck. Part of it, though, is being content with your own lot, isn't it? Rather than comparing experience to other people saying I'm happy with this and it almost it doesn't matter what others have done and I think the people that are able to do that are the ones that seem to me to be really happy yeah or I guess the answer is you can be happy with either I mean I guess I think like how would you you know if this was your family and your children what would you be saying I think the answer is either is great you know part of it is as you say is about your own attitude and how you see the world and if you're the kind of person that's going to be happy, you're going to be happy whether you're in the same square patch or whether you're off seeing new adventures. I wonder if we get a little clue about what Lisa thinks from that line from how easily those miniature nooses slipped onto the needles and fastened to another. That word noose is just so loaded with sort of meaning for me. I do feel like, you know, the sister, the mother, her mother has kind of made out to be the one who gets away because of her figure, because of her, you know, her ability to dazzle with her smile. And she's the one with a harder heart, you know, which is, you know, that that's what it takes to be able to leave. It's remarkable, I think, too. But then, you know, she does want to think that her aunt has chosen to stay to look after her granny. But I'm not sure people make that choice for themselves ever. I think they choose it because out of duty, but I don't know that they make them, people make those choices for themselves. There's a part of it that really reminded me of a conversation you and I have had about Iranian customs when uh, she talks about the Caribbean rules of handling objects only with express permission. It reminded me of when you talk about, you might have to correct my pronunciation, taroffing. Taroffing, yeah. Taroffing, okay. Yeah, that's, there's a Persian tradition. It's a, it's a sort of custom, really. Maybe tradition's too, too, too strong a word, but which is that you must never say yes to anything that's offered to you. It's, it's impolite, um, even if you desperately want it. So, you know, if you were dying of thirst in Iran and someone offered you a glass of water, you would say, no, no, thank you, I'm fine. And you usually have to refuse three times before you can accept, which is nuts. But friends tell that that happens in Ireland and around cups of tea as well. You have to really force someone to have a cup of tea. But that's true for almost anything um, in Iran. So... You say, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly, no, no, no. There's just this little game that goes on. But also there is this tradition that children mustn't touch anything ever. And really there is a really seen and not heard, you know, kind of a vein that runs through that culture. So you mustn't, you know, get any near any of the adult things. But often in these sorts of things, I mean, she's talking about clothes, but you might have your eye on sweets, but you're absolutely never going to get them unless you wait. And quite often, you know, people, I remember very specifically once being offered an orange that I was desperate for. And um, I was only offered it twice. And I said, no, because that's polite. And I moved on. Because <laughs> the adult was also being polite and had no intention of giving me that beautiful orange, but it would have been rude to, to not. Ah, okay. Me. So it was, a, it was a deliberate only offering twice. Yeah. Ah, okay, so they had been seen to have offered and you had been seen to have refused. Yeah, 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 yeah. So funny. Um, So yeah, it does remind me of that kind of game that you play with relatives, particularly from a culture that isn't your own. So, you know, if we were writing about Persian culture from Iran, it wouldn't seem odd at all. It wouldn't be worth mentioning. 
But here, Lisa mentions it because it's so unlike the experience that she has at home, you know, which might be, well, if you compare it with Portsmouth's auntie who is saving up the biscuits and is giving her the sweet things, she's expecting that, you know, whereas it feels like sneaking, you know, in with Trinidad auntie. So, yeah, there is that kind of thing too. But also there is that kind of, you know, as you say, um, aunties are forgiving you the extra treat. You know, she's, she's getting all sorts of things she wouldn't get at home that seem sort of slightly glittering or unusual or unique in a way that Portsmouth auntie doesn't seem to have. It's comforting and familiar, which is funny to me. And I was going to say, I love the end of this piece, but it takes us out into a different thing. I mean, it, I guess what I really like about good writing for me is that it opens a door to another room and then kind of leaves you there deciding what to do with it. So I think she hints about the idea that there's a lot more to her family. This almost feels like the start of something that I want to read more of. And I think that the use of that word portal, the intricately doilies doubled as a portal, is exactly what you described, that invitation to step through, which is something I love when I've read. For me, it's a way of taking a book or a story with you after you've finished it when it's those thoughts are still popping in your head, that feeling of being bereft when you get to the end of a book that you've really loved. And I, I often find that that's worst where all the ends are neatly tied up. And when things are left a bit open and you're left to wonder and continue to think, that sort of ending of the story and closing of the book for the final time is less painful when you can still carry the story with you. And I think for me, I'm still thinking, oh, I wonder, I wonder what happened where that auntie is and what she's doing now and those sort of yeah. things. She's done a brilliant job of, of sort of shaping them or drawing them for us so that I feel like I know something about them both. But, you know, you can, what's really nice, she gives us enough to work with that we can kind of get a little shading of what's happened in this family or a shadow of what's hanging over and in, and in a way, it's all tied to the kind of fabrics, you know, that idea of the knitting to begin with, and then the doilies at the end. Yeah, history, really, how, it can, how you can have a history that ravels or unravels. It's really lovely. That same, I don't know what's raveling and what's unraveling is a lovely moment at the beginning, I think. So thank you, Lisa. That was, that was great, really. That yeah, one. we loved that. Shall I read the poem that Lisa's, um, or one of the poems that Lisa's picked out that she thinks links well with her piece. So it's one of Jackie Kay's, who's a great favourite of a lot of our open book readers, and it's called The Knitter. I knit to keep death away, for him will day me. On a day like this, the fine mist is a drop stitch across the sky. I knit to hold a good yarn, for stories bide with me. On a night like this, by the peat fire, I like a story with a herringbone twist. But a yarn eye slips through your fingers and my small heart has shrunk with years. I couldn't measure the gravets, the gloves, the mittens, the jerseys, the cuffs, the hose, the caps, the cowls, the cravats, the cardigans, the hems and facings over the years. Beyond the seawall, the waves unfurl. I knitted through the wee stitched hours. I knitted till my eyes filled with tears, till the dark sky filled with colour. Every spare moment, time was a ball of wool. I knitted to keep my croft, knitted to save my life. When my man was out at sea, I knitted the fishbone. Three to the door, 
three to the fire. The more I could knit, the more we could eat. I knitted to mend my broken heart. When the sea took my man away, and by day I knitted to keep the memories at bay. I knitted my borders by the light of the fire, when the full moon in the sky was a fresh ball of yarn. I knitted to begin again. Lay on, sweetie gang, tacking my mackin everywhere I gang. Een and een, twin pins, my good head, a whole life of casting on, casting off. Like the North Sea, I watch wave after wave, plain and pearl, casting on, casting off. I watch the fairies coming back, going away. Time is a loop stitch. I knit to keep death away. I love that idea of the knitting being the rhythm of her life. There is a real rhythm to knitting and that clicking of needles gives you a real sense of rhythm and time. And I think this poem really captures that idea and that feeling. I love that idea of time as a ball of wool and that knitting somehow can help you through difficulties or maybe maybe help is the wrong word, maybe see you through difficulties. Knitting to save your life, knitting to keep your craft, knitting to deal with grief. Yeah, that your sanity is sort of embedded in your knitting or dependent on your knitting. As long as you're knitting, you can hold it together. Yeah, again, you know, I don't get the sense that the knitting's what saved her financially or that actually helped her in some way with the grief. I feel like it's, it's a sort of soothing thing or kind of, yeah, a bit like reading might, but I suppose reading is more active. You know, it's just something like a companion through that rather than something that maybe actively changes anything. I think the thing about knitting as well is that you can think while you knit. A bit like cooking maybe for us. You know, I know we both love to cook or bake or you're a little bit engaged in it. Bread baking, yeah, is another one. Things that we love to do for sure. Yeah, but I do, I love the way that she describes every spare moment. It actually makes me really want to learn to knit because I do think, partly because it would make me stop. I know you took it up so you would stop looking at your phone. Yeah, just to keep my hands busy, exactly as you described. The early days of the pandemic when, you know, before we were settled into any rhythm or or any sort of sense of structure to the days and everything was still up in the air and I find myself constantly checking the news and I thought that wasn't a positive thing. So it was very much to create a bit of rhythm and a bit of um, structure and to keep my hands busy. Yeah, no, I can see. And I, I think I probably started running for that reason too, more during the pandemic. I love as well the connections between the sort of natural world and what's outside the window and outside the place where she's doing the knitting. I love the description of the mist being a drop stitch and the waves unfurling, those sort of connections between the inside and the outside, which makes you feel like she's still connected to what's going on in the world. It's not that the knitting has made her completely withdraw and be in a place where there's nothing but the knitting. It's as if the knitting's acting as a kind of a bridge between what's inside and outside. And it's a great reflection of what you're doing in knitting as well, right? Going in and out, something that's going to be on the outside, something that's going to be on the inside. So it's back and forth. She also does that really lovely thing, which I noticed because I don't speak Scots, which is to start in using lots of scots at the beginning and also at the end and i wonder if that's a reflection of a life 
you know, that you might hear lots of Scots at the beginning of your life and certainly at the end of your life. I think you kind of revert back to whatever language you spoke more of or, or certainly accents and things tend to get stronger, I think, as you get older. So I wonder if it's slightly, it's slightly that too, if it's a kind of timeline in a way. Yeah, well, it, it feels like that when she says in that final or near the end, I knitted to begin again. And that's the point at which the Scots comes back in. It's a lovely connection to Lisa's work as well because it isn't. It's it grounds us in Scotland, but it's still about that kind of back and forth. How something has gotten you through, how you how you draw a line or thread something through a family or through a life. And I've loved meeting this poem as well because I've read quite a lot of Jackie Kay's work over the years, but this is not one that I've ever come across before. So it was really nice to be introduced to a new poem. Yeah, me too. Me too. And that's what's been so lovely about asking our writers to suggest poems they might like to link with their own work is that um, I think you've said it before, Marjorie, that we've got to meet new poems and come across new writers that we maybe wouldn't have um, necessarily have known about. Yeah, yeah, that's been a real joy, especially for me because I spend so much time reading poems, so it's lovely when you get something new. that's just about us for this week um time just flies by when we get to read and chat about stories and poems it does it does thanks for joining us thanks for having us in your ears we'd love to hear what you're reading and what you think of these stories and uh, and what you're out there picking this summer and making into cordial or otherwise but we hope to be back in your ears again soon <laughs> <laughs>